I would advocate that henceforth, because I think we'll get more people actually listening to it. We put something in. I would say that we need to put at the beginning of every episode. Hey, welcome to Let's Pod This. Yada, yada. If you like the pod, please subscribe. Please tell your friends and please rate us on iTunes. everyone, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Scott Melson, I am the other host. This is how we started last week's episode, The Hosts. Yes. Hosts. I think, didn't, uh, didn't someone in the Oklahoma legislature use the word hosts I know to we're refer to this, I'm afraid you can go there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we're we, not using it that way. We might come back to that guy in a minute. Um. <laughs> So, uh, on this week's episode, this will probably be a shorter episode because it's been a long week and not a lot of stuff has actually happened. Right. It's one of those, it's one of those weeks. There has been a ton of activity, but almost nothing of substance that's actually gone on. It's like those work days where I get home and my girlfriend's like, how was your day? And I said, I was busy all day and I didn't do a darn thing. Right. Exactly. I'm exhausted, Mm -hmm. but I don't know why. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think where we left off last week is uh, right where we end this week, with one maybe notable exception. The update on the budget is the House and Senate have passed, have jointly passed one measure, and that is the $23 million uh, of moving money from the Rainy Day Fund. 38 days of special session, $30,000 a day. What do you have to show for it, ladies and gentlemen? One bill to the governor's desk for $23 million. So we've, so we've spent... Nine hundred thousand dollars. We spent yeah. a, spent a million yeah. to get twenty three million. Even, even mill. Yeah. All right. Well, um, the House has talked about some other measures, but those haven't passed the Senate yet. Yeah. So the House passed what's the uh, the so called Legacy Wells bill. Uh, we've talked about uh, Legacy Wells. Legacy Wells. It sounds like a, a neighborhood in Edmond or it Broken Arrow, or or a uh, like nineties cover band. Ooh, Legacy Wells. You like that? Yeah, I don't. I feel like there's a joke there, but I'm not sure what it is yet. We'll get there. Yeah, it, it takes time. Mm-hmm. The good ones have to cook. That's, they're not all winners. <laughs> but right? no, so the, yeah. the house the house uh, passed the Legacy Wells bill yesterday. This is just a bill that uh, would raise the gross production tax on a very small subset of oil and gas wells in Oklahoma, like 6,600 wells, I think, which sounds like a lot, but we have tens of thousands of wells. And some of those wells have been there for decades. Right. And they produce like a barrel a week or something. Yeah, yeah. So it's like uh, – and, I, you know, it's that's important because there's there are some legislators now coming out that are like, see, see, we did it. We raised the gross production tax. And it's like, you know better than that. You really didn't. Did you really? Right. And as uh, we heard from Joe Warren with OEPA uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast – I think one of the top producing wells, I think Devon is the one that drilled it, and it produces something like 24,000 barrels a day or something. <laughs> 6,000 barrels a day. 6,000. The, the highest production oh. that he's read, the highest production that he has seen reported is 6,000 barrels a day. So like 24,000 a week. Yeah. Right, yeah. That makes more sense. My Which is still a lot of oil. Yeah, that's a lot of Right? That's, that's a lot, a lot of, of oil. oil. Um, and when each barrel is worth roughly 100 bucks... And I mean, just to ballpark it as an average. Yeah, that's a, that's uh, right now. I would say average. Average is probably closer to sixty right now. Prices right. are right now. Prices are like fifty two, fifty three. I'm still thinking about 
Back in our heyday. When, <laughs> the, good old, the good old days. When, when oil just spewed from the ground and we called it black gold. You know, it's not, it's not completely unrealistic to say that if oil was $100 a barrel, we would not have this problem. We would that's not, true. We, it, we wouldn't be in a great situation, but we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. So that's what happens. And that's, I think that's probably a good point to make is that uh, rewind 10 years when oil was $100 a barrel and we lowered the gross production tax from 7 to 1% there. Yeah. Uh, and we did that. And so that maintained like, so 7% of $100 is $7. And so we are getting $7 for every barrel. That's great. But then we were drilling so much that, you know, we could afford to get less. We dropped it down to just 1%. So we got $1 of every barrel. And that was fine until the price of oil tanked. And so then we only got 1% of like a $35 barrel. Yeah. And that's not much money. Yeah. Not. And, I cut you off, but and when we didn't get when the getting was good, other states raised their rates because they were still, you know, corporations are making big profits. We also didn't save like we should. And, you know, I both know all consumers know we should save more money. Well, that applies to the state as well, which is why we have the rainy day fund. States like Alaska expanded the rainy day fund to like $2 billion so that they could store more away because they knew that at some point the price would decline. And so they were better prepared for when it did. And we were not. Yeah. Yeah. Two things, two things kind of stick out to me about that. First one piece of trivia. Uh, Do you know why Oklahoma has a rainy day fund? No. So the rainy day fund came about in the 1980s. We didn't have one until then. It started in the 1980s as a response to, <laughs> to the, the oil, oil boom, to the oil bust in the 1980s. So uh, the so the oil oil bust happened in the early 80s. We were like, oh snap! This we have to protect ourselves in case this ever happens again. Um, and so that's why the rainy, where the rainy day fund came from. The second thing, and this is related to the first point, is that for a state who has been so dependent on oil and gas, specifically oil, for literally our entire existence, we we as a group demonstrate a shocking ignorance of the boom and bust cycle of the oil economy. Every oil man or woman that I know that I've ever talked to about the business, when oil was $100 a barrel, they literally all said, well, here's one thing we know. It ain't going to be like this forever. Right. Right, and and yet our state government seemed to operate under the assumption that no, maybe maybe it will. Maybe you think it will be gener- like this forever? You think it's a generational thing where the folks like uh, Mr. Warren, who are twice our age, um, they probably know better now. But as younger groups get into it, they don't have that kind of institutional memory because a lot of the companies now, Chesapeake, Devon, weren't around back then. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, I think that that's part of it. I, I think that there's also a very aggressive lobbying campaign waged particularly mm-hmm. by a lot of the publicly traded companies. And this is something I think we were going to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, at some point today anyway, like I think that there's a tendency, um, you know, certainly when you look at, you know, social media, um, people kind of talking on the street to, to demonize oil and gas and say, well, can you believe these oil and gas companies only want to pay 2%? Um, yes, I can absolutely believe that. A lot of these companies are large publicly traded companies and they have a legal and fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to advocate for the lowest taxes as possible so that they can pay the highest dividends possible. Right. That is their, that is their, like if they can go to jail for not doing that appropriately. So the people that are at fault here I mean, I'm not here to say that everyone who works at the upper echelons of oil and gas is 
a saint. I'm sure that they have their business like, you know, anyone does. But I don't think that you can look at this and say, well, we're in this situation because oil and gas is evil. Mm-hmm. We're in this situation because the legislature has didn't, didn't make the hard choice. Right. To, you know, has has I think really in some ways kind of sold out to a pretty heavy lobbying presence rather than what's good for the state over the long term. Right. Yeah. And I think that is a, a, a point that I didn't fully appreciate until the last few months, both between what I've learned in my MBA program about business and shareholders and how this all works together. Hashtag grad school. <laughs> and uh, uh, also what I've learned from the government. And that's that what you just said is exactly right. That, um, you know, CEOs have a responsibility. Um, companies have a responsibility, a legal responsibility to do what's in the best interest of their shareholders. And that may be opposed to what the best interest is of the public. Some of these oil companies in Oklahoma are owned by com- companies in China. Um, some of them are locally owned. And and so there is it's a different perspective. And we all need to do what's best for our employer, right? Uh, which then the legislature's employer is arguably the people. Right. And we really need them to step up. And I, I get that they will say they also represent people who are employed by the energy companies. They were they represent the companies that are in our state. It does get complicated to some degree. It I mean it it does, but there's also you know, I, I keep coming back to this. Like I I don't fault the oil and gas companies in the industry for for you know, advocating for the lowest taxes possible. I think that's what you wouldn't mm-hmm. expect for, for them to do. I think most industries do that. But I think that as a as a member of the of the of the state legislature, I think that you have to look at at the rea- at the reality of the situation and say, okay, um, the the oil is in the ground; it can't move. So if they want it, they have to drill here and get it. So when they say that if prices, you know, if the tax rate goes up, they're going to fire all these people, they're going to pack up, they're going to take their toys and go home, they're going to go drill somewhere else. Well, you know, like we heard from, you know, like we heard from uh, Joe Warren, like we've heard from OEPA, um, even at 7%, which no one's talking about right now. Well, not no one. OEPA is talking about it. We'll get there. Um, But what at 7%, which most people aren't talking about right now, we're still the lowest tax rate in the country. So if you can... If you can drill in North Dakota at 10% and make money, you can drill in Oklahoma at 5 or 7% and make money. Right. And I think that that's the point OEPA is, is making. So one one bit of uh, – it didn't really happen in the, in the halls of government this week, but it is a piece of news, I think. Um, OEPA, the Oklahoma Energy Producers Alliance, which is a oil and gas industry trade group, uh, announced last Friday – um, that they have uh, started a campaign to put a ballot initiative on statewide ballot in 2018 yeah. uh, to put an oil and gas gross production tax of 7% um, to a vote of the people. Uh, this would be this is a ballot initiative that will raise the gross production tax to 7% on all wells. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting when they start producing, I think, right? Mm-hmm. There's no there's no 36-month or 12- or 18-month right. incentive period. It's you start pumping the stuff out of the ground, the tax rate is 7%. Um, I think that's uh, really interesting to hear that coming from an industry trade group. And they want the money just to go to education. Right. I think, I mean, everyone that I've mentioned this to has been like, that's great. And then you kind of see folks think about it, and they're, they start to recognize that 
there's no golden goose, right? Oil is not a golden goose, and we have a finite amount of resources and a state, and so if money comes from somewhere for one thing, then that maybe that means we should move other money to something else because we need it in lots of areas, and it gets tricky in a hurry. Yeah. Well, I think we can all agree on is that our state needs more money. Well, okay, I'll back up. Not everyone would agree with this. I will say, um, <laughs> well, we'll, we get, heard to, we'll week, get to the terrorists in a minute. Um, this week, but if for our state, I will say for our state to get to where I think people want it to be, that's different. We don't want to be last in all these things. Um, and if we're going to be even middle of the road, it takes some investment to get there, time and money, uh, for us to get there. And we also we have, we've cut the budget for ten years in a row, and that. But our population has grown, and so we have to do more with less, and that's not working out for us. And so we need to get money from multiple sources. So people look to oil. People are looking to medical marijuana. Neither one of them are a golden goose. Um, somehow we stopped talking about the income tax cut, which is one of the things that got us in this hole in the first place. Um, you know, uh, a higher rate for higher earners, that kind of thing makes sense. I think there's lots of options. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of kind of earmarking the funds for education, I will personally be interested to see if that actually happens. So it's important to note that this is a ballot initiative right now in name only. So the the first thing that has to happen, which hasn't happened yet, is that there has to be legislative language drawn up right um now this is i mean i I do want to emphasize this is a serious effort they estimate that the total cost of um, obtaining signatures drafting language getting getting this thing on the ballots can take about three million bucks they've got seven hundred fifty thousand pledged today Mm -hmm. and they've been fundraising for a week Mm -hmm. so i think their chances are pretty good that they'll get the money um but i will be interested to see like when you get a law firm you know when you get people that are kind of experts at drafting bills, you know, putting things in kind of what I would call legalese being that I don't speak it. Um, I would be interested to see if they leave that provision in there. But the thought is right now that yes, this would be earmarked for education. Uh, But first they have to get the language done. Then they have to get the signatures, right? This is not automatic. So you have to get, um, they're estimating about 126,000 signatures in order to get this thing on the ballot. Right. Yeah. Um, and the way it works in Oklahoma is you you can't just start getting signatures today. You have to draft language. That language has to be presented to a judge. A judge has to say, yeah, you know, this will work mm-hmm. basically. And from that moment, I think it's 90 days. Yeah. It's, then you pick a date and you and maybe it is from that date. You've got 90 days to get all of the signatures collected and verified. verified. And that means that they have to do it by hand on clipboards with certain forms. You have to handwrite your signature. Then you have to type those up. Then you have to present all the paper, handwritten and typed copies, to the attorney general or governor or somebody. Yeah, somebody. And they have to review it. So that's um, And if they can't read someone's handwriting, you can't count it. Um, so you really have to collect... Like one hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, and, and it's and it's unique signatures, right? Like I can't sign it five times, right? And yeah. that doesn't count five, right? right. Only um, registered voters, one one person, one signature, right? And so this is why you know people are like oh my god, well you want to put it on the ballot? Why why on the earth that cost three million dollars? Well, this is why. Um, well, it, it, you, I mean, typically you have to pay someone to collect right. the signatures in the first place, right. and then a lot of the money goes towards just the education campaign 
on the back end once it's been verified and you're approved to go on the ballot. Then you got to get people to vote for it. Then you got to get people to vote for it, and that takes time and money as well. You know, I think as we get closer, I mean, this is you know, this is a year away. Um, you know, the 2018 elections are a year away, and obviously they've got a lot to do to even you know get the language done and get the signatures collected. But assuming that happens, this is really interesting to me because there are certain ballot initiatives. Medical marijuana would be one. I think that um, a nonpartisan redistricting panel could be one. I think that raising the gross production tax could be one. These are all potential ballot initiatives for 2018 that I think could drive turnout in a way that is not typical mm-hmm. for an off-year non-presidential election. Right, yeah. So the number of signatures required for a ballot initiative are is based on the number of voters that voted in the last governor's race or that election um and it's like 10 percent of that or 15 percent um and so if you have a high turnout it makes it more difficult for the next four years for you to do ballot initiatives get to get more signatures in the same amount of time absolutely i just think it'll be interesting to see that that if any of these things you know if the gpt increase if medical marijuana if you know a nonpartisan redistricting initiative were to make it on the ballot for 2018 which is at the federal level a midterm election mm-hmm. in which turnout is typically abysmal even by American standards. I'm curious how an initiative like that would would or would not drive up mm-hmm. voter turnout in an off-year election. Yeah, it's curious. I've heard about some a few other potential ballot initiatives that are being tossed around, but they haven't yet started raising money or anything. But the ones I've heard about are aimed at making things a little more fair in the election process so that um, maybe parties don't play quite the same role that they do right now. Interesting. What's, what's, tell, tell me more about this. So one idea that I've heard is um, about shifting Oklahoma to a top two, maybe called a jungle primary, which I like that term. Um, basically, it's... Oh, my. <laughs> it's uh, where everyone from both parties, like a nonpartisan open primary. So both everyone who's running runs in the primary, both parties, all parties. So Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, Independent, anybody, you're all in there. Everyone runs together, and it's open. So everyone can vote on that. And so you are voting for the best candidate, not just the best one of your party for whom you're registered. But that would theoretically mean that my choices for governor would be Todd Lamb or Gary Richardson. Not necessarily. If everyone is running, it would be everyone. So like... And this is really the... Oh, so you would, so in the general, it would just be the top two vote-getters in the primary, or would? No, it would be top two in the primary. But in the primary, it means Republicans can vote for Democratic candidates, Independents can vote for anybody, Democrats can vote for Republicans, you can vote for whomever. Shit and just, just got for really legis- And so really just for legislative races, maybe not for statewide elected officials like the governor. But to use that as an example, right, if you've got 12 candidates for a seat from three parties and they're all in there, then the top two from that primary goes on to the general, and then you pick from that. So yes, it wouldn't necessarily be a Republican versus a Democrat, but in some races, there may be two people from one party that are the best two candidates. Sure. So does who else has a system like this So now? Nebraska has a system like this. Uh, a number of states have one that is a top two system, but it's partisan. Uh, Nebraska has one that's top two, but it's nonpartisan. They've had it since like 1937. And what you end up getting is better candidates. And when you have better candidates, you have better laws, right? So because in the primary, you're not running for just your party base, like if it's nonpartisan, 
you're running for voters, not just your party base. So what happens right now is both parties run to their base, which tends to be the far right and the far left. And that means you get the candidates that are most extreme and they have to try to come back to the middle in order to get votes for the general election. If it's a nonpartisan open primary, then everyone's running for everyone's votes and you as a voter can cast your vote for whomever you like. Um, so I've been registered with both parties at different times. And the reason I have switched is because there were people on the other side that I wanted to vote for uh, because I thought they were the best candidate for the job. But I couldn't because I wasn't in their party, so I couldn't vote in their primary. And I had to just hope they were going to make it to the general election. But this would let me vote for them no matter what. So people who would the people who would dislike it are the parties. Right? Sure, sure. I would also say, let me think through this. Counter counterpoint. Yes. If you have, because this would still be based on districts, right? Like you'd still have like. Mm-hmm. So, if you have a district that which many states do because of partisan gerrymandering, if you have a district that is very, very conservative or very, very liberal. Mm-hmm. I don't know that having an open primary would matter as much, right? Because right. because you would still, it's like, okay, yeah, in theory, I'm competing for all the votes of everyone in my district because there's no primary, but 90% of my district is, you know, you know, far left or far right. So right. I'm still going to run towards towards them. So I wonder, is is this something that, doing away with partisan gerrymandering would address in the same way. So, yes and no. I think in those districts that are highly partisan one way or the other, um, if the voters are that way, then, yeah, there's going to be that slant. However, a lot of districts aren't actually as slant as we think. A lot of people that find themselves in the middle, like a lot of voters that consider themselves to be more moderate of both parties, don't vote in primaries because they feel like their vote doesn't matter because it would matter less. Now, all of a sudden it might shift, right? Like I know Oklahoma's added more independent voters every month than either party. Uh, And that's been the case for a couple of years, I think. And so it would give them a bigger chance. Also, so maybe there's a few districts that are partisan that stay partisan. Sure, sure. There's a lot of other districts that are more moderate or more purple. And those might, you would just get more moderate candidates. Sure. People we see now like uh, David Holt or Leslie Osborne, um, uh, Scott Inman, um, some people, I guess he's pretty far left, but there's um, a lot I'm of gonna, folks. I think it depends on your definition of far left. Well, it's, <laughs> that's true. Oklahoma Democrats are pretty close to the middle. Um, and I mean, Governor Brad Henry would have been a Republican in any other state, I think. Uh, yeah. So um, what, um, what it would do is maybe moderate some of those. And then when they do redistrict, you've got a more moderate or reasonable group of folks that are doing the redistricting. So even if you sure. don't get a full um, nonpartisan redistricting right. commission, you might still get better people making better decisions. Sure. That, that, that makes sense. That and makes so sense. Um, I've got an article I'm reading about Nebraska and how they've done with the system and some of the, the legislation they've passed. Nebraska's a state you don't hear about much because there's a lot of cornfields. But Lincoln um, and the University of Nebraska has some really great research programs. It's yeah. a, actually a pretty awesome state in lots of ways. Also, <clears throat> they're not last in all this stuff, right? <laughs> in literally everything. Right. They're in, they're like in the middle, like in the like top 30s on some things. So like maybe not one of the best states for some things, but not the worst not either. Not currently 48th, 49th, or 50th. And like I want Oklahoma to be best in lots of stuff, but I'll settle for like 
really good yeah. right now. Like it's an incremental thing, right? You know what else is unique about Nebraska? I don't. From an electoral perspective. I shouldn't say unique because Maine is this way too. So Nebraska and Maine, only two states in the country that allot their votes in the Electoral College based on the results of congressional district, not the results of the state as a whole. So mm-hmm. if you are running for president of the United States, for, to, to, to so one of our listeners, split. that's the next, yes, to whichever one of our listeners is going to be the next president of the United States, be advised that in Maine and Nebraska, merely winning the state is not enough to get you all of their electoral votes. You have to win each congressional district. Each congressional district in Maine and Nebraska allots their electoral college votes based on whoever wins the district. I like it. Yeah. So, so there's, I want to say, three districts in both states be, yeah. with electoral votes divided uh, according to population. So you can win Nebraska's, you know, first or whatever right. um, and get their votes. But if you lose the other two, then they would go to the opponent. Interesting. I, I think it's interesting. A lot of people um, would say... Why in God's name are you talking about this at 3.30 on a Thursday? Thursday, right. Well, and that uh, reminds me of something, and we'll kind of start wrapping up here. We may skip over the terrorist thing from because it's just not good news. It's not good news. It's just so – it's infuriating, and I feel like people deserve – They've heard it. To know. I mean, if they're listening to our podcast, they probably know. The 50 of you are the most involved people in this Um So – uh, but about districts, legislative districts, a West Wing connection, which I know you love. I do. When you watch the West Wing, is it not interesting to you that somehow like they all know all the districts in every state? It's like, oh, the, the Georgia 5th and the Nebraska 3rd, and they know who all these people are. I don't know that Josh Lyman actually knew all 435 members of Congress plus all 100 senators and like their hometown, all this information he seems to know off the top of his head. You know, so this is going to demonstrate what a nerd I am in two ways. Oh, good. Um, because the first is that I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and second is that I have actually thought about this in my head. Like, I've thought this exact question. Like, how does he know? Because you'll see them sitting right. You'll Like, there's. A, I can think of at least two instances where you have all of the senior staff of the West Wing sitting around in the Roosevelt Room. And they're talking about electoral strategy. They're talking about trying to push something through Congress. And you'll have one go, oh, yeah, the Georgia 5th. Oh, yeah, the Indiana 1st. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's that they know all 435 districts. However, I absolutely think they know the top 30 or 40 that prove pivotal in these Elections, right? That's probably because true. at at and this was even this was even happening already in the nineties, right? Because yeah. it's happened all the way through. It's it's happened all throughout our history as a country. Gerrymandering's been around since. Although I say gerrymandering, another fun fact: pronounced gerrymandering because it was named after a man, Mister Gary, from I want to say Connecticut, maybe Rhode Island, but G E R R Y. Yes, it's it's spelled G E R R Y. But if you go up to the northeast. Um, they'll tell you that it's gerrymandering, not gerrymandering. On Parks and Rec, isn't Jerry's name actually Gary, but they all call him the wrong name? I think you're <laughs> right. <laughs> I wonder if it's a reference to I, this. It Maybe. I don't know Parks and Rec as well as I know West Wing, but I, I digress. Um, it's it's a sad but true fact that there are, there are congressional districts in this country that really prove pivotal, right? And you see this on election night, right? You'll get, uh, you know, Chuck Todd or... Tim Russert, God rest his soul. May he rest in peace. You know, they get up there and they have the giant map and they'll say, okay, looking at Wisconsin, we know 
all these districts, right? All these precincts are going red. We know all these precincts are going going blue. But these three precincts, which make up this one congressional district, are really what it comes down to. And so if you figure you have one of those districts, maybe, per... And I'm not, I'm not even going to say one per state. You have a couple of those districts in Wisconsin, a couple in Ohio, right. a couple in Florida, a couple in Pennsylvania. You know, pretty soon you've got tw- you've got twenty districts, twenty congressional districts. That swings of that swings a presidential election. Yeah. So I think that yeah, if you're se- if you're a senior staff in the White House at the level of you know deputy chief of staff, certainly chief of staff, um, director of communications. Yeah, I think that you I think that you have. Part of your job is to have the demographics and voting patterns of that district at pretty much instant recall. Right. I get the same thing. Like, but they don't know the you know top five counties in Oklahoma for HIV rates, and I know that. Right. So everyone's got their thing. Right. All right. Well, let's uh, let's kind of wrap up because we've got to get somewhere else here in just a minute. So a quick reminder that this is you're probably listening to this. Well, this is going to be published on Friday. And uh, Friday night is our fundraising event, Bourbon, at 612 in the Paseo District. You can still pick up tickets online on our website, letsfixthisok.org, or you can buy them in person if you just show up. That's fine as well. Andy, uh, how do you spell Bourbon? Oh, good point. Uh, well, if you just go to our website, there's a pop-up that'll show you. We're spelling it B-O-U-R-B-U-N, Bourbon. Oh my gosh, that seems unique. Why is that? <laughs> because we'll have bourbon and buns, Scott. Thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, but next week, um, two really cool events. On Tuesday, the 7th, we will have an event called Gearing Up for 2018. We are partnering with Oklahoma Watch and Women Lead Oklahoma. It's going to be at the Paramount on Film Row in Oklahoma City, the old Paramount Theater. And it's going to be uh, kind of a panel discussion. Uh, myself, um, Trevor from Oklahoma Watch and um, Elizabeth Hill and is going to moderate, not Hill, Horn, excuse me, Elizabeth Horn from Women Lead and Kendra Horn are going to be on the panel discussing what matters at city, state, and federal levels and kind of help you get your brain wrapped around how the government fits together structurally. As we started planning this, there's way more information. We're going to do more of these events. Um, this is just kind of laying the groundwork for that. And then on Thursday... We have our second West Wing watch party. You got to go, guys. You got to go. It's the just... first one was so awesome. I can't come, and I am – I mean, I'm, I'm pretty devastated. I'm excited where I'm going to be, but I I really wish I could be there. I'll, we'll just Skype you in so you can watch. I, You know, I've never watched West Wing on Skype, but I've got to believe I would enjoy it just as much. <laughs> it's uh, You can watch the same episode at home on your own. So it'll be at the Wheeler Ferris Wheel, the Wheeler uh, – yeah, the Wheeler Ferris Wheel – which is on southwestern, just south of the river. You can't miss it. It's the Ferris wheel. It'll be all lit up. Uh, we will be there from, I think, 8 to 10. So bring your jackets, bring a blanket, um, camping chairs, food, cooler, whatever you want. Have we decided on an episode? Um, not fully yet. I need to watch some this weekend. I'm trying to get caught up on Stranger Things first, if I'm being honest. So you're telling me that part of your work, your work in preparation... For let's fix this this week is to watch the West Wing. Right, I don't get paid for this work, mind you. But I, I, I watch a, the West Wing for free. I, you do watch the West Wing <laughs> for free. I have a thought on which episode. I just want to watch it to make sure. Um, and we're gonna have a panel. We're gonna have some old politicos um, that have been like that were like in office uh, back when like Gene Stipe was governor and stuff. Um, and they're gonna tell us some stories about what life was like and how it's different then versus now. And we're talking about. 30, 40 years of Oklahoma politics. 
um, and why they think people should be involved. There should be some really interesting stories. Shout out. I know, Andy, you did not grow up in Oklahoma, right? You grew up in Austin? Yeah, mostly. Texas and Minnesota and here. When did you move to Oklahoma? 99. 99. So you may not remember this. I don't know when they are, but to, to all of our... To all of our like old school Okies listening today, anybody remember the Jeans type law office commercials when we were kids? I remember that because this was before DVR, right? You couldn't fast forward. You had, to, you had to tape stuff if you didn't want to watch it when it was on. I just remember the law offices of Jeans type. His voice was always so calming to me. Interesting. Yeah. I heard that his campaign or his office was riddled with scandal. I I believe that that is one hundred percent correct. Sad. I just I didn't know that until I was older, and and I was I was a little devastated because to me he was a a, a guy that looked kind of like Santa Claus on his uh, commercials and had a very soothing voice. Mm. A very soothing voice. Yes, he would say, "Call me the law offices of Gene Stipe." That's nice. You should get a radio gig. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Let's Fix This Okay. You can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash let's fix this okay. Our website, as I said earlier, is let's fix this okay.org. Scott is at SC Melson. That's I'm, true. I'm at Andy OKC. And Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to help people like you get involved, educate you, equip you so you can be more involved in state politics. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. 